Hello, and welcome to the 16th episode of the InfoSexing Podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSexing is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. And now, for the stories of the week, ending March 6th, 2015. What's up, up, InfoSex and fam? What's going on? Guys, what's up? So, guys and gals... It's all in the, you know, we all got the InfoSexing family huddled around a podcast for one more amazing podcast, hitting you back another week. Glad to be back on the mic. So, uh, we got some great stories to go over this week. Um, You know, really cool stuff going on in information security. We want to keep you guys apprised of what to look out for in the wilderness we call the internets. So, first thing. Stop the press. HTTPS crippling freak bug affects Windows after all. So there was a Microsoft advisory that dramatically raised the number of vulnerable end-user devices. So computers running all supported versions of Microsoft Windows are vulnerable to a freak. A bug disclosed (laughs) on Monday that for more than a decade has made it... Dude, what's going on, Nick? You're cracking me up over there, man. You got me with the freak. You got... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't the freaks come out at night? They do. They do. But on uh, Windows systems, they're out on all hours. They don't have a, a. They don't have a time. You know. I don't have any uh, time restraints. What do you got to say about that, Vic? Don't be busting on my Windows. I like Windows. Well, you know, there's freaks everywhere. I guess. So this is definitely a freaking nature bug. So. Um, a bug disclosed Monday that for more than a decade has made it possible for attackers to decrypt HTTPS protected traffic passing between vulnerable end users and millions of websites. Microsoft convert, confirmed the vulnerability in an advisory published on Thursday. A vulnerability scanning service at freakattack.com, which is a site that offers information about the bug, confirmed the advisory, showing that the latest version of IE11 running on a fully patched Windows 7 machine was susceptible. Previously, it was believed that the Windows system was immune to the attacks. So, freak attacks, short for factoring attack on RSA export keys, are possible when an end user with a vulnerable device connects to a vulnerable HTTPS protected website. So, HTTPS secured with SSL. So, vulnerable sites are those uh, configured to use a weak cipher, 
that many presumed had been retired long ago. In analyses um, immediately following Monday's disclosure of a freak, uh, it was believed Android devices, iPhones and Macs from Apple, and smartphones from BlackBerry were susceptible. The addition of Windows dramatically increases the number of users known to be vulnerable. Attackers who are in a position to monitor traffic passing between vulnerable users and vulnerable servers can uh, inject malicious packets into the flow that will cause the two parties to use a weak 512-bit encryption key while negotiating encrypted web sessions. Attackers can then collect some of the resulting exchange and use cloud-based computing from Amazon or other services. They mentioned my buzzword, cloud. Give them $10 for that. Um, or other services to factor the website's underlying private key. So the process requires about seven hours and $100. From that point on, attackers are uh, on a coffee shop, hotspot, rogue employees working at an ISP or nation-state-sponsored hackers can masquerade as the official HTTPS-protected website. Uh, Coup also allows them to read or even modify data as it passes between the site and end user. Meanwhile, Android and Apple devices, right? On Thursday, Google developers released an update for Chrome uh, of Chrome for Mac that can't be forced to use the weak 512-bit cipher, effectively closing the freak hole when OSX users uh, are on the Google browser. Uh, so lots of freaks here. Um, <laughs> at the time of this post, uh, when it was being prepared again, we're reporting this from our Technica. Chrome for Android remain vulnerable, and Google officials have yet to provide any public estimate on when a fix would be available. Apple officials have said patches for OS X and iOS would be released next week. So Microsoft Advisory provided no estimate on when a patch would be available either. So in the interim, people on vulnerable devices should consider using Firefox, which over the past two days has consistently been labeled safe by the Freak Attack site. So in recent weeks, security researchers scanned more than 14 million HTTPS-protected websites and found that 36% of, uh, percent of them supported the weak cipher, meaning that they are vulnerable to the attack. As of Thursday morning, vulnerable sites included AmericanExpress.com, Groupon.com, Bloomberg.com, and many more. Microsoft Advisory offers several workarounds for more technically inclined um, readers or listeners of this podcast but some of them will prevent IE from connecting as expected to certain websites. So despite a large number of sites and end-user devices known to be vulnerable, there has been considerable debate among security professionals about just how critical the threat posed by Freak is. So uh, support for the argument um, the threat is low is the fact that it is hard or impossible for adversaries, adversaries to carry out the Freak attacks remotely or in mass numbers. Additionally, Google, Facebook, and most other large sites are invulnerable. This, these considerations and the perception of the threat is low, um, and they are likely contributing to the slow pace of patches coming from Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Still, other researchers say the severity is much higher. Besides the millions of websites uh, and the incomprehensible high number of end-user devices known to be vulnerable, other reasons to think uh, Freak is severe is the fact that his as has existed for over a decade. That means it's possible malicious attackers have known about and exploited it for years already. So lots of freaks out there. Got to secure them. What do you guys got to say about it? Got to secure the freaks. 
I know it sounds pretty scary to me. You said this thing could have been ongoing and uh, it's gone undercover for a long time? Yeah, for a little bit. Un- undiscovered? Yeah. It's one of those things. Yeah, so that was the story on Freak. Coming to serve it up to us next is our boy, Nick Tella. Hit him with it. So there's been a lot of talk about Apple Pay lately, and they're saying, is the weak link in Apple Pay strong chain? Can I pay with my iPhone? Bank verification? Who's to blame? Yeah. It, can I can I pay with my phone anymore? Yeah, you can still pay with your phone. All right, tell me why. Someone's getting paid. Yeah, tell me why. Earlier this week, a February blog post by mobile payments consultant Sherian Abraham captured the attention of the media and set off a flurry of articles about rampant fraud on Apple Pay. But despite headlines declaring that Apple Pay sees 60 times more fraud than magnetic strike credit cards, the details are a bit more nuanced. It turns out that Apple Pay as a platform appears quite secure. It hasn't yet seen any man in the middle or any other hacking attacks that we know of that could result in the loss of thousands of credit card numbers like the target breached it. But Apple Pay as a service offered to customers in conjunction with bank issuers might be struggling to keep up with the persistence of identity thieves. Abraham, who works as an advisor to Simply Tap, a company that builds host card emulation technology for devices using Android, says identity thieves are buying iPhones with stolen credit card information and then loading them with that stolen credit card information. Because the fraudster's iPhone is so new, Abraham argues there's very little detail that Apple can send to the banks to help them verify who the user is and if that card information is fraudulent. Abraham also writes... These are organized crime rings that are handing out pre-provisioned devices to mules that are then being used to commit fraud, with much of fraud for some issuers occurring around Miami, Florida, and Dallas, Texas. Prepaid cars, unsurprisingly, are a tool of choice as they can be quickly converted to cash or goods, and subsequently untraceable. What was surprising to hear was how many times Apple stores themselves popped up as the store of choice for the fraudster. And yet, unsurprising, due to its nature as a luxury retailer, there is a certain irony in one compromised Apple Pay device paying for another, only to be drafted subsequently into the fraudster's device. This is, this is actually this is pretty interesting. But is it Apple's fault if a bank approves a credit card number that was stolen outside of the Apple Pay platform? To back up briefly, let's explain how cards are verified on Apple Pay. When a person goes to load her or his card into Apple Pay, credit card information is encrypted and sent to Apple servers. Where the information is then decrypted and the card network and the card's issuing bank are determined, Apple then re-encrypts the data and sends it along to the user's bankity bank. Along with other information about your iTunes account activity and device, such as the name of your device, its current location, or if you have a long history of transaction within iTunes. All right, so what we're going to do is um, kind of go into how Apple Pay and Google Wallet actually work. So many companies uh, are part of your credit card transactions. You know what they actually do. So using this information, your bank will determine whether to approve adding your card to Apple Pay. So that was from um, Apple support page. At this point, a bank must decide uh, between green lighting or approving the customer based on the information Apple can send to the bank or pushing the customer down what's called the yellow path and making them provide additional verification. Verification from the banks can take a number of forms. And Apple's own iOS security white paper from 2014 explains 
Depending upon what is offered by the card issuer, the user may be able to choose between different options for additional verification, such as text message, email, customer service call, or in a method-approved third-party app to complete the verification. Because additional verification is determined by the bank, the fraud rates at individual banks will vary widely. And unfortunately, banks don't speak much on or to the press on the internal matters, so independently verifying a fraud rate on Apple Pay across banks would be difficult, to say the least. Abraham writes, A provisioning request Apple deems as legitimate, which would be the green path, is never seen by the issuer. Every issuer uh, that Abraham had spoken to agrees that there is negligible fraud in cards provisioned via the green path. Um, launch issuers have been able to bring the yellow path closer to a 10% uh, rate, but for some others, there is a large variance, in some cases up to 55%. Abraham's post also suggests that it is hardly an anom anomaly for banks to see 600 basis points of fraud on Apple Pay transactions, meaning that $6 of every $100 spent through Apple mobile payment platform is fraudulent. That 6% fraud rate is compared to a 0.1% fraud rate that banks see with the traditional MagStripe cards. But there's a reason to take that number with a bit of skepticism. One bank industry source speaking under the condition of anonymity told Ars Technica that uh, of the 6% fraud claim, we're not seeing anything that's even close to that number. Of course, the fraud rate will vary greatly from bank to bank. Most banks refuse to speak to Ars Technica on the record, besides a Wells Fargo uh, spokesperson who told Ars Technica that all transactions are monitored within Wells Fargo's risk and fraud detection systems, which is a heuristics-based system looking at the risk and fraud associated with a particular transaction or approval. So Apple responded to Ars Technica's request for comment with an official statement saying that none of this really rests on Apple, but banks that need to are working to stem fraud. Apple Pay is designed to be extremely secure and protect the user's personal information. During setup, Apple Pay requires banks to verify each and every card, and the bank then determines and approves whether a card can be added to Apple Pay within the application. Banks are always reviewing and improving their approval processes, which varies by bank. Still, Abraham argues that Apple should have advised its bank partners better on how to deal with a huge influx of users who um, should be put on the yellow path. Call centers are an inadequate means to spot fraud because thieves can call ahead of time to alert the bank of a trip out of town or call you know, call center respondents and into all basically try to get them through social engineering to authenticate or um, authenticate a card and add it to uh, fraudulent Apple Pay. But this issue is not unique to Apple. It's not even new to banks. Um, credit cards have been stolen out of a mailbox, right? Um, in this particular instance, uh, with Ars Technica, the reporter had said a credit card was stolen out of this person's mailbox a couple years ago, and then the thief was able to authenticate the card, retrieve $200 from an ATM, then buy $54 worth of gas um, before the bank noticed anything unusual. The only difference between that incident and this issue is that Apple is the messenger passing the provisioning request and the authentication method uh, or message between the user and the bank. In an earlier post, Abraham had admitted that this technique can be used uh, across payment platforms and not just Apple Pay. Still, Apple Pay grew to be uh, the major player in the mobile payment space very quickly. The Wall Street Journal points out that Two of every $3 spent via contactless payments on Visa, MasterCard, or American Express happened on Apple Pay as of the end of January. So, I mean, 
with that looking at it, it's a very, very popular payment method. Um, I think Apple had factored in their popularity into developing Apple Pay uh, and the security methods and security controls implemented. But at the same time, attackers, what do we see? Chip and pin. So a chip and pin, the big problem was they had the um, verification code that went and said it was a chip and pin enabled transaction. That had an implicit level of trust, right? Because they said it's chip and pin, it must be good. Well, they attackers were looking at vendors that haven't even implemented a chip and pin device there, and they were replaying that um, replaying that that signal or that you know attack attack, um, basically saying you know this is a transaction that was verified with chip and pin, even though the vendor at the storefront didn't have any chip and pin enabled devices, and it got the green light. Because there was an implicit level of trust there. So these people are taking <clears throat> regular credit cards and they're, however they're getting the numbers, they're going to buy, they're going to the actual Apple store to buy the device and then using Apple Pay later on to go back to the same Apple store and buy more devices or whatever. Um, but here's the thing with electronic money, you can trace it. I agree. But, and it can be a trait. So people may, may or may not realize this, but if you're using applications on your phone, over GSM, whether it's LTE, whatever it is, you have an IP address. You have a point of presence on your phone. So it is ex it, exactly. It's very traceable. So using Apple Pay and what are they coming out with now? Um, the Google Pay? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a Google Pay. So all these electronic payment methods. And remember currency? Yeah. Yeah. So all these electronic payment methods, it's going to make it easier to find the fraudsters and the people who are actually um, right, committing but, the crime. But in any... So that's a defense mode, right, where I'm trying to trace the attack. The thing is, it will require time for us to identify malicious activities um, that are related to, like, Apple Pay or Google Pay. So until that time, there's going to be a, a rough patch. Yeah, which, like right which, now. Right, right now, where it's getting rolled out. They have a green path and a yellow path, but attackers can always – it's really the hack value. I mean, there, there's a huge hack value here. Even though I can trace it as a, you know, if I'm trying to do some type of investigation on what happened, why did, you know, this this individual's, if I was the bank and I said, I want to trace where this actually happened, who actually perpetrated it. By the time I figure out where it was perpetrated from, this could be perpetrated in an AWS instance that just got spun up to do this purpose and now it's spun down. You can always emulate the Apple Pay API to do these fraudulent. So that that new network you have at your house is that what you're running the AWS and? No, 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 no. So <laughs> at my house, I have um, shout out to Doug Burks. It's a Security Onion IDS. And that's the sensor I have deployed. Um, then I have uh, PF Sense, Suricata and Snort um, running on that. So it's kind of an IPS setup. Yeah. <clears throat> the problem is before you get to the Apple Pay, it's um, authenticating the card to the device or the account to the right. device, and that's, and that's where, where, that's, where they're that's where they're taking advantage of the banks, and um, maybe the banks are working on something to uh, come up better with, but once this all gets worked out, there should be really low fraud, hopefully, with, elect with electronic payments. Well, I was reading today that um, the banks actually responded to the uh, fraud with improved verification for Apple Pay. And um, basically the article 
went on to say that um, Apple Pay was secure and that and it seemed like it was it remains locked down and the fraudsters were able to take advantage of banks rather lazy identity checks so absolutely um, and then you know ultimately the person whose credit card it is I mean I, I think the banks have also put pressure on them it's ultimately their responsibility because you're supposed to kind of review your bills and stuff like that too don't they have a lot of those apps where there's alert that there's a new charge on your account I think some of them yeah some of them have that and when I signed up for Apple pay mm-hmm. I use um Bank of America, and I've had them for years, and the process they put me through, even though I've been with them for years, was like I was a brand new person. I mean, they're asking me a lot of information that I don't think a fraudster could get. Okay. And I I didn't have a problem with it, and in, you know, 30 minutes or so, I was able to use Apple Pay. It It was great. Okay, for our next story, a researcher at OpenDNS Security Labs has developed a new way to automatically detect and block sites used to distribute malware almost instantaneously without having to scan them. The approach, initially developed by researcher Jeremiah O'Connor, uses natural language processing and other analytics to detect malicious domains before they can attack by spotting host names that are designed as camouflage. It's called NLP Rank. It spots DNS requests for sites that have names similar to legitimate sites, but with IP addresses that are outside the expected address blocks and other related data that hints at sketchiness. The practice of using lookalike domain names as part of an effort to fool victims into visiting websites or approving downloads is a well-worn approach in computer crime. But recent crafted attacks through phishing links and emails and social media have gone past the well-worn typo-squatting approach by using domain names that appear close to those of trusted sites. Registered just in time for attacks to fly under reputation scoring security tools to make blacklisting them harder. Fake domain names such as update-java.net and adobe-update.net, for example, were used in the recently discovered Carbanic attacks on banks that followed criminals to gain access to financial institutions' networks starting in January 2013, and stole over $1 billion over the next two years. Many security services can screen out malicious sites based on techniques such as reputation analysis, checking a centralized database to see if a site name has been associated with any malware attacks. But because attackers are able to rapidly register new domains with scripted systems that look relatively legitimate to the average computer user, they can often bypass reputation checks especially when using their specially crafted domain names in highly targeted attacks. O'Connor's approach, which is currently being tested by OpenDNS using live DNS query traffic, gets around the reputation problem by simply analyzing the domain name itself for sketchiness. It works in a way similar to natural language processing of any stream of text content. Using patterns spotted in malicious DNS traffic, OpenDNS security researchers are training the NLP rank system to identify domain names that look similar to legitimate sites, but have attributes that flag them as being suspicious. Quote, essentially what we are defining is a malicious language within the lexical nature of DNS traffic. O'Connor wrote that in a blog being published uh, this morning. 
The language consists of domain names that are combinations of technology company-related texts, such as Java, Gmail, Facebook, or Adobe. For example, with a collection of certain dictionary words, O'Connor explained, install, update, security, or payment, for instance. The system then performs sentiment analysis on frequently queried domain names in tens of billions of DNS requests that flow through OpenDNS daily. Looking for patterns like these, applying a set of ranking scores to domain names that match the pattern. If it's a Facebook-related domain and not associated with Facebook's IP address space, that would be a negative tick. Or if it was registered a day ago and administered by someone with a Russian disposable email address, those would be negatives. No, 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 no. With a Russian disposable address. Continue. I like that. And the system can also do HTML analysis of websites associated with the domain names to check if there's a match. We can look at fraud websites and compare them to actual legitimate pages. See how much they differ, they explained. OpenDNS is currently fine-tuning the system to prevent false positives, but that so far NLP rank has held up well in testing. Hay said that OpenDNS is currently fine-tuning the system to prevent false positives, but that so far NLP rank has held up well in testing. We have used it to detect malicious phishing campaigns, he said, and we've been able to use it to validate data in other security firms' reports, giving us additional reinforcement that it's working. So I think this is a great tool. I'm going to go check it out as soon as we get out of here and see how it's doing. And um, I think you should try it out on your network, Matt. Add it to your list of tools. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, guys. I'm going to get into a blunder. So Uber. Who here has used an Uber? Nobody. Thought about it, haven't actually I haven't actually done pulled it. Pulled the trigger on it. No, I haven't done it. No, I rode in an Uber here. That's how executive I am. I'm you U- like Donald Trump? I'm Uber executive. Yeah, try firing the the Uber driver. It doesn't work out too well. <laughs> you fired. You fired. Get out of my car. <laughs> All right. So, um, no, I, I have my uh, I have my ways to get here. Typically, it either involves a moped or a bike, but I get here. So, uh, the the domain names in this post have been redacted to protect the careless. This is from Mars Technica. So, recent revelations that Uber stored a sensitive database key on a publicly (laughs) accessible GitHub page generated its share of amazement and outrage. Some Ars Technica readers called for the immediate termination of the employees responsible for the enactment of new legal penalties for similar blunders in the future. So, PSA, don't upload your important passwords to GitHub. The same goes for private SSH keys and other sensitive credentials. Keep your sensitive credentials to yourself. Nobody else wants to hear about them. Or see them. Or have anything to do with them. So, left out of the discussion was a point. Ars Technica first tried to drive home more than two years ago. To wit... GitHub and other public code repositories are awash with personal credentials posted by tens of thousands or possibly even millions of people, some of whom work for extremely sensitive organizations. A case in point is GitHub. GitHub had entries that appear to include everything needed to log into many secure file transfer protocol accounts, SFTP, 
for those who are used to acronyms. So, one GitHub search revealed almost 269,000 entries. That's 6-9-269-000 entries, like the one uh, pictured above. You can visit the link on the show notes and check it out. Showing the domain or IP address, username, and password needed to log into each account. Similar searches generated almost 2 million entries for the WordPress accounts. A quick scan of the results show that many of them represent no security threat at all since the password fields are blank or the credentials belong to non-existent accounts or accounts that are accessible only to users already connected to the local network. But a mind-numbingly large number of percentage of the results appear to provide credentials for accounts on production servers. Whether the percentage is 33, 25, or even 10, it's way too high. So, it wouldn't be surprising if many of the credentials offered shell accounts that ran with highly privileged administrator rights. To protect the careless, this post won't reveal the specific search terms used, even though they are extremely easy for readers to figure out on their own or to find on Twitter, in the blog, or in other venues. Again, we report the news. This is not self-generated, just a FYI. So, as Ars Technica has reported before, malicious hackers are increasingly favoring web servers as the targeted choice since they offer more computing power and bandwidth compared to more traditionally targeted Windows-based desktops and laptops. Besides the increased firepower for waging denial of service attacks, servers often can be used as beachheads to further penetrate companies' networks. Penetrate. It is hard to imagine criminals aren't already employing automated scripts that regularly trawl GitHub for credentials that can be used for this purpose. Who needs spear phishing and software or web exploits when the login details are just sitting in plain sight? Oh, that's awesome. Of course, who does? So in a major goof, um, you know, Uber stored the sensitive database keys on the public GitHub page. And, uh, you know, that's a ride-sharing service. They subpoenaed GitHub for IP addresses that access the security key. For obvious legal reasons, Ars Technica did not test the hypothesis, but Uber's recent admission in court uh, documents suggest it's by no means far-fetched. If a digital key unlocking a database storing driver's license numbers of 50,000 Uber drivers can remain on GitHub for six months, as the subpoena Uber filed against GitHub strongly implied, there is no telling what other credentials belonging to other companies are being similarly siphoned up. Readers who are tempted to scoff at Uber's epic blunder have reason to do so, but let's not forget that ride that the ride-sharing service is hardly alone, and this critical mass of carelessness makes the internet less safe for everyone. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. Throw down. How about more IT insecurity about Blu-ray discs? Internet of Things. Hit it. In the beginning, there were USB worms. Now... The threat threat has migrated migrated to DVDs. For more than a decade, malicious hackers have used booby-trapped USB sticks to infect would-be victims, in rare cases to spread uh, virulent self-replicating malware on air-gapped computers. Now, a security researcher says he has found a way to build malicious Blu-ray discs that could do much the same thing without any outward signs that an attack was underway. Stephen Tompkinson, a security consultant at NCC Group, said he has devised a proof-of-concept exploit that allows a Blu-ray disc to compromise both a PC running Microsoft Windows and most standalone Blu-ray players. He spoke about the exploit on Friday at the Securite conference. At the- was that you? No, that was you. What are you talking about, Securite? <laughs> Is that real, dude? 
All right, guys, we're back. We confirmed the Securite conference is real, so let's continue on. At the Securite conference yeah. at the Aberte University in Dundee, Scotland, during a keynote titled Abusing Blu-ray Players. By combining different vulnerabilities in Blu-ray players, we have built a single disc which will detect the type of player is being played on and launch a platform-specific executable from the disc before continuing on to play the disc's video to avoid raising suspicion. Tompkinson wrote this on a blog post. These executables could be used by an attacker to provide a tunnel into the target network or to exfiltrate sensitive files, for example. The Windows-based exploit targets PowerDVD, the media player software bundled with the OS Blu-ray equipped PCs since at least Windows XP. The Blu-ray specification uses a variant of Oracle's Java framework known as BDJ that allows disk creators to offer various user interfaces and embedded applications. The PowerDVD software offers additional Java classes that provide still more functions and can be invoked using XLEPs, which are small snippets of code analogous to applets found on websites. One of the Java classes that XLEPs calls is a CUtil class that has the ability to read arbitrary files from the disk. Tompkinson discovered a way to manipulate the list of ob- objects the software reads so he could add his own malicious code. As Blu-ray disk will autoplay on systems with PowerDVD installed, we now have a mechanism to bypass Windows auto-run mitigations. To compromise standalone Blu-ray players, Tompkinson turned to the extensive amount of already existing research on rooting players, including this exploit, which makes use of a programming debugging process that allows the launching of a web browser. Using some XLET wizardry, the researcher found a way to run executable files embedded in the disk from the player's supposedly limited environment. NCC is working with software and hardware makers on a fix. In the meantime, the company recommends that people avoid using removable media drives from unknown origins and that they use the autoplay section of the Windows control panel to stop disks from playing as soon as they're inserted. NCC also recommended using any available settings to prevent disks from accessing the Internet, since in many cases that will disable BDJ network access, including to the local host. And as always, users should think long and hard before connecting standalone Blu-ray players or any Internet of Things device to the Internet. If there's not a clear benefit, it's not worth the added security risk. Got a question. So if I'm able to execute code on a Blu-ray player, right? Because a a Blu-ray player has to read from the disk in order to play it. So there's some mechanism in place to read in data and write it out to the HDMI port or whatever port you have it hooked to to display, right? So, or to, I don't know, maybe it's just a read-only. But either way, it would be really interesting to see if I could trojanize a Blu-ray player to then maybe... I guess it wouldn't matter because you can't burn a Blu-ray disc from a Blu-ray player, right? Only a Blu-ray writer. Right, only Blu-ray writer. So the the issue would be for a Blu-ray writer. If let's say you had a Blu-ray writer, writer player, a writer player, right, that took in like VHS and write it out to Blu-ray, right, or something something similar like mm-hmm. that. Now you have you have a problem there. They're not going to trojanize it. But what they're worried about is it executing 
uh, malicious code on a connected Internet of Things device and then getting onto your internal network. That's what I guess that's what they're worried about. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very interesting stuff indeed. So, next up is Google. So your phone is in the is in the spotlight now, Vic. So All we right. have iPhones. So Google quickly backs away from the encrypting uh, on new Lollipop devices by default. So encrypted storage will only be required in future versions of Android. So that was last year. Google made headlines when it revealed that its next version of Android will require full disk encryption on all new phones. Older versions of Android had supported the optional disk encryption, but uh, Android 5.0 Lollipop would make it a standard feature. We're starting to see new Lollipop phones from Google's partners, and they aren't encrypted by default, contradicting Google's previous statement. At some point between the original announcement in September 2014 and the publication of the Android 5.0 uh, hardware requirements in January 2015, Google apparently decided to relax the requirement um, and pushing it off to some future versions of Android. Here's the timeline. So, loud announcement, quiet backtracking. So, they Google's decision made the, uh, you know, that decision to encrypt the Lollipop devices by default, and it was reported widely um, in both tech-focused and mainstream publications. So, this is um, something that we're reporting from Ars Technica, just throwing it out there. So, for over three years, Android has offered encryption, and keys are not stored off of the device, so they cannot be shared with law enforcement. That was Google spokeswoman Nikki Kristoff, Then that's what they told the Washington Post in September. They also said, as part of our next Android release, encryption will be enabled by default and out of the box, so you won't even have to think about it, about turning it on. Google reaffirmed in a statement in an October blog post about Lollipop security features and encryptions of the user data partition would occur at first boot, and it would be on by default from the moment you power on a new device running Lollipop. For a while, the only new devices uh, that Ars Technica had ran Lollipops were Google's own Nexus 6 and Nexus 9, both of which were indeed encrypted by default. Older devices that were upgraded to Lollipop, a large number of older Nexus devices, the 2014 Moto G, and a handful of others didn't enable incursion by default, even when you performed a full reset of the phone. This made some amount of sense, suddenly encrypting devices that were not designed with encryption in mind could impact performance and cause complaints. I mean, some serious implications down the road. So, a little over three months after Lollipop's release, they're finally beginning to see new devices from third parties. One is second-generation Moto E. Its user data uh, partition is not encrypted by default, and Ars Technica reviews the uh, editor, reviews editor Ron uh, tells that the new Galaxy 6 demo units at Mobile Car- uh, Congress are not encrypted by default either. So they asked both Motorola and Google about this, and they eventually discovered what was going on. The latest version of Android compatibility definition document, um, the guidelines OEMs must follow to create Google-approved Lollipop devices, includes a subtle change in policy. Here's a relevant passage. Uh, emphasis is Google. So this is section 9.9, full disk encryption. If the device implementation has a lock screen, the device must support full disk encryption of the application private data to slash data partition, as well as the SD card partition if it is a permanent, non-removable part of the device. For devices supporting full disk encryption, the full disk encryption should be enabled uh, all the time after the user has completed the out-of-box experience. While this 
uh, requirement is stated as should for this version of the Android platform, it is very strongly recommended as they expect uh, this to change to must in future versions of Android. In short, the devices are required to support encryption, but it's still up to the OEMs to actually enable it. And this is exactly what Google was going to do in KitKat and older versions. Um, but full disk encryption is expected to become a requirement in future ver- Android versions, but it remains optional in Lollipop despite Google's earlier statements. So what happened? So uh, they've asked Google why it relaxed that requirement after publicizing it so prominently, but the company hasn't responded to the inquiry as of the writing, and they'll publish an, uh, Ars Technica will publish an update, update if they do. So here's what they think most likely happened. Lollipop's encryption requirement made headlines again in November. This is because it had a large impact on the new Nexus 6's performance. So Ars Technica's review of the Nexus 6 showed that the new phone could be slower than the old Nexus 5 in certain tests. And um, Tech A and... What is it? And and Tech uh, supplied additional numbers that showed just how severe the performance impact was. Those reports were circulating fairly widely, and Google's lollipop encryption and stories about the slowdown dominate the first page. By the time the compatibility definition document was updated in January, full disk encryption was no longer a required feature. Our our Technica's best guess at this point is that the encrypted by default requirement was relaxed to give OEMs more time to prepare their hardware for the transition. The performance problems can be offset by using faster flash memory, faster file systems like F2FS, and chips that are better at encrypting and decrypting data quickly. But phones and tablets take long enough to design that OEMs will need time to make these changes. Whether the change in policy was prompted by external pressure or an internal decision isn't clear, but the performance explanation makes the most logical sense. If you want encryption on your Android phone now, you still have to enable it yourself. Unfortunately, even though this compatibility document was published over a month ago, most publication and Android users still believe that Lollipop will encrypt their devices by default. Google needs to make it clear that it has changed its policy. Update. And in a statement to Engadget, Google confirmed that performance issues on some partner devices is to blame for the backtracking. The company said it would continue uh, encrypted the Nexus device by default and that Google remains firmly committed to encryption because it helps keep users safe and secure on the web. Wow. Very interesting stuff. So, um, let's see. What do you have for us? Drones spying on cell phones for advertising campaigns. Do tell. The Singapore-based company Adnir is using a fleet of commercial drones to determine users' location and deliver hyper-targeted ads. Drones that spy on unaware people, a nightmare come true, apparently nothing new, considering that it is a common practice of law enforcement and intelligence agency. The bad news is that also a few advertising companies are also using unmanned aerial vehicles to monitor unaware users' cell phone data. It is sufficient that a smartphone is running an app transmitting through cellular or Wi-Fi to track a mobile user. Be aware, the app does not need to be sending location data to track it. The Singapore-based company Adnir is using is using a number of small drones flying around the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles to track Wi-Fi and cellular transmission signals. The company started its activity early February for commercial purposes. The principle is quite simple. Adnir uses drones to sniff out wireless signals from mobile devices and identify them through the device ID. The practice to collect device ID helps the company to track the movement of users to track their profile and discover their preferences. 
Sounds like an invasion of privacy, doesn't it? It does. Do tell more. The company uses a fleet of quadcopter drones equipped with cell phone tracking systems in order to deliver targeted advertisements to the user's quadcopter drones with cell phone tracking systems in order to deliver targeted advertisements to the users. The company publicly announced that data it collects is anonymous. This means that it doesn't include any information that could be used to track specific users. In this phase of the experimentation, Adnir is testing location mapping functionalities. In a next phase, it plans to deliver targeted ads. The company confirmed that has over 530 million users profiling covering various Asian markets for its advertising campaigns. The technique uses signals straight against the nearby towers or Wi-Fi hotspots to triangulate the signal that along with other indicators allow to calculate device location. Quote, at Adnir, we always think of innovative processes in technology, states the company website. Till now, Adnir has been using bikes, cars, trains, and even walking up the stairs to collect data, including Wi-Fi and cell tower signals. This wireless data helps Adnir's location platform precisely locate devices without the need of GPS or operator assistance. Today, we started initial tests with drones to collect data, and the results have been fantastic. The use of drones bring a series of advantages to the company, as explained on its website, including better altitude coverage, radius beyond roads, and GPS control flight path. Quote, the usage of drones for location data collection would tremendously reduce human intervention and ease the process of collating data in inaccessible regions. We are talking a new level of stairs altogether, the description reads. For us, this means a ton of fun. Now imagine that you are walking near that and it wants to advertise its products. A drone could collect mobile signals to target advertising related to the products for a specific user nearby. Principal concerns related to the use of drones for civil uses are related to privacy and security. Small drones are easily able to be acquired and on the internet. It is also quite simple to find off-the-shelf products that can transform these unmanned aerial vehicles in powerful spy machines or weapons. In October 2014, a group of Israeli researchers demonstrated how to hack air gap networks by using lasers and drones. Meanwhile, in December, they wrote about wireless aerial surveillance platform, a small do-it-yourself drone that has the capability to crack Wi-Fi passwords, eavesdropping on Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi passwords, and cell phone calls and read text messages. In March of 2014, researchers at SensePoint have realized a software dubbed Snoopy that could be used to turn a drone into a perfect spy machine able to steal data from mobile devices. The above cases are just a couple of examples of potentially dangerous users of UAVs. For this reason, the drone industry needed to be regulated, such as the possible use of these powerful machines. So privacy issues here, guys. Wow. How much is a drone? Well, I did a quick Google search. and um, Actually, I went to Amazon, and uh, they started off at uh, $57, which probably is more of a... Uh, house version, and then if you want to get to the commercial grade, if you want to go to the uh, Peeping Tom edition, you could probably spend, drop about a grand 
Oh my gosh. It. So uh, this it's, one looked pretty um, high tech. It has HD video camera. Wow. Um, yeah, Man, it has everything already on there. Yeah, so you you can get and you probably it. can control it by an app. Yeah, I, I think a lot of them. I know the um, yeah, some a, a lot of those things have apps that you can use to control it. So that's um, crazy. But I will tell you one thing. This kind of reminds me of Google. So Google was collecting wireless access point information in order to um, in order to geolocate you. You know, you know how it says activate Wi-Fi for more accurate. Right. That's because when the Google car goes by, it not only does Street View, but it also collects wireless access point MAC addresses for open access points. Isn't that crazy? So, um, let's see. Well, that that's kind of scary because, I mean, with a drone, I mean, that opens all kinds of new privacy issues, right? Oh, Every, yeah. It can be used in very good ways and also in very, very bad, bad ways. And now I think the FAA uh, law has come out that it has to, um, I believe it's 500 feet it could only go up to. Wow. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. I'm sure there's hacks and cracks and... <laughs> all, all types of stuff. They get the old version that didn't have the firmware update. Right. Or just get an old firmware. Or hack the firmware. So, we have time for one more story for the fans. Financial Trojans in 2014. So, Symantec reports a significant drop in infections. So, Symantec revealed... Um, a significant drop in the number of financial Trojans in 2014, and a report includes a detailed analysis of the phenomena. So Symantec has analyzed the evolution of financial Trojans in 2014, and they highlight a significant drop in the number of detections of malicious agents. So Symantec analyzed nine common financial Trojans during 2014. The sample analyzed targeted customers of 1,467 institutions in 86 different countries. The drop in detections in 2014 can be partially attributed to the to the takedown and arrest of operations conducted by different law enforcement agencies in cooperation with the security industry. The most targeted, and that was from a Symantec report, the most targeted in, uh, institutions are located in the U.S. and account for 95% of the financial Trojans. This is because the large number of American bank customers uh, use online services, um, and, and that's higher. So according to the analysis published by Symantec, takedowns contributed to 53% drop in infections while financial phishing emails decreased by 74%. The security firm revealed that the greatest number of detections occurred in the U.S., followed by the U.K. and Germany. While, uh, meanwhile, in Canada, there were an important reduction um, in respect to 2013. So the researchers noticed an important increase in the number of infections for Zeus and its variants. Uh, they grew by 10 times from uh, 2012 to 2014. Both Crydex, W32.crydex, and SpyEye infections decreased by respectively uh, 88 and 87% from 2012 to 2014. Meanwhile, some malware families, such as Shylock, nearly disappeared. Uh, some threat families like Trojan Shylock nearly disappeared, whereas others, such as the new spinoff threat, InfoStealer, um, file, uh, filled some of those gaps. Some groups shifted their focus to other contents, such as um, Asia and to local payment systems, such as um, Boleto Bancario in Brazil, says Symantec. So the report explained that the stolen bank accounts are precious commodities in the underground market, and they are sold for 5 to 10% of the balance value on underground crime forums. 
Stolen banks do have a short shelf life, and criminals intend to sell it quickly before the account gets suspended. And there is a constant supply of new compromised accounts, and often money mule accounts are the bottleneck. Symantec speculates that the implementation of strong authentication mechanisms uh, is making it harder for criminals to hit banking users. Anyway, uh, attackers have evolved their techniques to try and circumvent new security measures, including new two-factor authentication and mobile banking. With many banks implementing two-factor authentication or additional transaction verification steps, it is getting harder for the criminal to misuse uh, bank account credentials without having direct access to the victim's machine. These factors lower the usefulness of the compromised account, and with this, the price tag drops. So the experts confirmed that numerous factors influence techniques adopted by criminals and the choice of their targets. Different global factors can also influence attackers' decisions, such as spoken languages and reasons where the international transactions are more difficult to conduct and require local steps to launder the money, state experts. Um, Despite the number of detections of financial trojans decreasing in 2014, the threat is considered still significant and security experts warn of new evolutions in the criminal ecosystem. But don't relax too much. The bad guys are still out there and they are still after your money. So be very careful and use good banking hygiene when uh, banking online and using your card or bank account information. And All right, we're, we're back. back. So that was another great show. Yeah, Nick and I were just looking at the uh, drones. They need to get a zoom uh, lens on some of these things. <laughs> yeah, why are these people bothering to buy the uh, the standard, what is it, $500 one and it comes with a camera? No, you get, get the, the good one with the good camera. You get your own camera and put the zoom lens on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot of great topics during this podcast tonight. Um, really, really good stuff. We enjoy putting out this content every week for our listeners. Um, again, be sure to check out our show notes. Uh, look at us on uh, iTunes. Check out our website and uh, you know our YouTube channel. We've got some stuff up there, too. With that, um, we're out. So talk to you guys next time. Have a good one. And remember... Stay safe and stay in sync with InfoSexing. We're out.